0: Welcome to The History of Skipton, episode 29, with me, Ian Lockwood, author of the book The History of Skipton. We're picking up from the theme of the last podcast, Law and Order, and looking a bit more closely at the Magistrates' Court. Until the First World War, the Magistrates' Court in Skipton met on Saturday mornings, mostly dealing with petty theft and disturbances. If you listen to episode 27 of the podcast, you may remember that those prosecuted for the Guy Fawkes riots of 1872 were dealt with in the Magistrates' Court. The court also decided upon Bastardy Awards. These were men ordered to pay for the upkeep of a child who might otherwise have been in the workhouse and thus at the expense of local ratepayers. The court would decide whether or not the man was the father of an illegitimate child and make an order for payment depending upon the circumstances. The building of railways and canals in and around Skipton tended to see a spike in cases. The worst case was in 1870, when five navvies working on the construction of Bardon Moor Reservoir caused mayhem in Skipton. They were breaking jugs in pubs and threatening locals, spitting at them and asking for a fight. Finally, they were arrested, brought before the magistrates, and find 40 shillings each. One interesting case I found came in 1869, when Ellison Sheldon, a youth working at Fattorini's jewellers on Caroline Square, was brought before the magistrates for breaking one of his employer's plate glass windows. However, Mr Fatterini said he did not really wish to proceed with the case, but had been compelled to bring the prosecution by the insurance company, which would not pay out unless he did so. Sheldon had had a quarrel with Mr. Fattorini's shop boy, who was sweeping up the shop doorway. He picked up a stone and threw it at the boy, with the inevitable consequences. The court merely delivered a warning to Alison Sheldon, but Mr Fattorini did get his insurance payout. The task of keeping order and prosecuting these minor offences was the responsibility at first of constables employed by the parish. An Act of Parliament of 1856 compelled all counties and boroughs to establish a police force. This led to the formation of the West Yorkshire Constabulary who operated at first from the same building which had housed the parish constables. This building was situated on the south side of Sackville Street and was to be knocked down to widen the entrance to Keighley Road. The current police station on Otley Road was opened in 1878. If there was one part of town where the local police had their work cut out, It was in Union Square. This group of houses, situated off Belmont Bridge, was a notorious area of Skipton whose reputation lived on longer than the reality. It was originally a set of weaver's homes on three floors. Today, the frontage to Broughton Road remains, with two storeys to the front and three to the rear. It's those houses you go as you're going you find as you're going over the bridge, Belmont Bridge, on Broughton Road, immediately on your right-hand side. Originally, the top two storeys of these buildings were used for home weaving, but by the late Victorian era, this practice had died out, and the top floors were used as lodging houses, the basement being inhabited by the resident family. With much of the construction going on in the town in the 1880s, many of those living here were itinerant workers and the cramped confines meant fierce disputes were not just commonplace, but were also violent and long-lived. A series of cases taken from 1889 editions of the Craven Herald illustrates the point. In May, Margaret Preston, And Mary McDermott brought out a private summons in the county court against Margaret O'Connell, a lodging housekeeper, and Mary Fitzpatrick, a single woman. Now, you'll need to keep those names in mind because they keep cropping up in various guises. So we've got Preston and McDermott bringing a private summons against O'Connell and Fitzpatrick. Preston told how she was collecting milk from the milkman in the square when Fitzpatrick came across and hit her across the head with a ladling can, drawing blood. Preston and McDermott ran back to Preston's house in the square, pursued by Fitzpatrick, who attacked McDermott with the same ladle. When McDermott left Preston's home to go to her own home, she was caught again in the square by O'Connell, who raced out and grabbed her victim by the hair, dragging her around. McDermott gave her testimony swathed in bandages and clutching a broken pitcher, which she claimed had been broken across her head by Fitzpatrick. It added to the dramatic effect in the packed courthouse. Oh yes, the public were out in force for this story of women carrying out private fights in the street. Now, Preston and McDermott, you'll remember these are the two who brought the prosecution, was backed by the milkman, George Jones. Preston's husband, Michael, and McDermott's 12-year-old daughter also appeared as witnesses. But the son of one of the accused, Michael O'Connell, contradicted them. He gave evidence saying that he was due to marry Fitzpatrick on the following Tuesday and both his bride-to-be and his mother had been leathered by Preston and McDermott. Whether leathering amounted to a verbal or physical assault was not made clear, but the Herald said that similar evidence was given by John Fenwick and Kate Smith, of whom more later... The remarks of Judge Hastings Ingham is illuminating. The Herald reported, He said he had previously had occasion to allude to the great trouble the Union Square gave the court. It was an utter disgrace to the town, and disorderly conduct went on week after week, and some of the inhabitants were before the courts constantly. The magistrates intended to do all they could to stop it. Fitzpatrick and O'Connell, the defendants, were each fined the huge sum for a working woman of five pounds and, if they could not pay it immediately, the judge ordered they would be sent to jail for one month. A cheer broke out in the courtroom, but it was promptly hushed by the bench. The women refused to pay and so were duly dispatched to prison thus scuppering any wedding plans the next week for Fitzpatrick. Now, O'Connell had been before the judge one month previously, summoned by another woman called Sarah Bower for assault. But the case had been dismissed for want of witnesses and confused evidence from Bower. It is worth noting that all these cases relating to the square were brought to the county court by private summonses, with the complainant taking the risk of paying the cost of the case in order to further these vendettas. And it was also said in the hearings that the police would refuse to patrol the square unless they were in pairs. Now, a month after Fitzpatrick and O'Connell were sent to jail, There was more trouble in the square and I can't help but think that it would be triggered off by the return of the the pair after their incarceration. This time, Mary McDermott, remember her? She was the victim of the first case. This time, she was the one accused of assault. She and her co-accused, one Catherine Fagan, were both fined £1 in a case brought by their alleged victim, Mary Hughes. And there's more about these women. On the same day, Kate Smith, witness in the May case against McDermott, was fined £1 for being drunk and disorderly in a case brought this time by the police. She'd turn up at McDermott's house and Fagan's, kicked at the doors and screamed at them to come out and fight. Unfortunately for her, a policeman was on hand to witness it. And Michael O'Connell, the thwarted bridegroom, was also before the bench in a private prosecution brought by yet another local resident caught up in the disputes, Cornelius Foley. Testimony was given that O'Connell had struck Foley in the ribs on the high street saying, I mean to have revenge out of you for sending my young woman to jail. What part Foley had in the jailing of the bride-to-be is not specified. But his assailant had to pay five shillings to him in compensation. I hope you're managing to keep up with all these fighting women. Because it's not the end of the matter. On July 27th, 1889, a few weeks later, a packed courtroom was in the county court to hear a case brought by Catherine Fagan against Michael O'Connell. Yes, the thwarted bridegroom again. And Mary Hughes, the victim of the assault, alleging perjury. Fagan, her son and husband, all claimed Fagan had never left the house on the evening on which he was found guilty of that assault on Hughes. Judgingham sighed in his chair. He tartly pointed out that Fagin had not called a single witness at the time of the original case, but now had managed to turn up with seven. The perjury case was dismissed and Fagan had to pay the costs. The court then had a little respite from the warring factions of Union Square. It lasted two months and a week. This time Fagan was back again, bringing yet another private summons, this time against Kate Smith, another witness in the May wedding case. Fagan was alleging she'd been assaulted by Smith because of stones which had been thrown at her. Fagan told the court that Smith had demanded a fight but she declined to be drawn whereupon Smith had started picking up stones some of which had struck her. The judge seems to have lost his patience and temper but he believed Fagan this time despite dismissing her previous case. He said that such cases were a disgrace to the town and he fined Smith five pounds, again a huge sum. The courts grew fed up of the Union Square disturbances. In June 1891, the Herald reported that Sarah Ellis had brought a prosecution for assault against McDermott Yes, that same one, after the daughters of the pair had quarrelled on their way home from school. Again, there was a conflict of witness evidence and an exasperated Judge Hastings Ingham said the whole lot of them should go to jail, but he was dismissing the case as a waste of his time. It was not quite the final chapter in the saga. The Herald reported in 1891... Another notorious assault case emanating from the Union Square area of Skipton, which some time ago monopolised much available time at the court, was down on the Charge Street. Mary McDermott, who has been shown to be of a pugnacious inclination, once more occupied the defendant's box, while Catherine Fagan appeared as the complainant. Yes, it's those familiar names again. This time, Fagan, who seemed to like bringing cases before the judge, claimed to have been hit by a stone as she tried to rescue her sister, Mary Preston, from assault at McDermott's hands. Preston appeared with an impressive black eye in the court and there were various witnesses to the case. McDermott was fined five shillings, which is a lot less than the five pounds the judge had been handing out. She was also ordered to pay the costs Came to a total of one pound, two shillings, and threepence. Union Square found it difficult to shake off its notoriety. In April 1896, a fifty seven year old widow called Mary Hannon was found unconscious at the bottom of her stairs with a fractured skull. As her lodger was nowhere to be found, suspicions were aroused. Mary Hannon was found by her son, taken to the hospital and died the next day without ever recovering consciousness. An inquest was told that nothing was missing from the house. The lodger had only been intending to stay for a short time and the doctor was of the view that the widow had had a brain haemorrhage and the fractured skull was due to her striking her head when she fell. A verdict ruling out foul play was returned but the town Was a buzz with speculation and rumour that the lodger was about to be arrested. He never was. We'll leave the wild women of Union Square behind us, but I want to talk about the most unusual case to go through Skipton Court. It came in nineteen o one, when Frank Delaware was charged with cruelty to a lion. Brought in under the new Wild Animals in Captivity Protection Act, it was alleged that Delaware, a lion tamer with Bostock and Womwell Circus, was performing on Skipton Dockyard and had walked into a cage with two lions. One refused to perform and Delaware struck it several times on the head with the butt end of his whip. Inspector Lindsay of the RSPCA, bringing the case described it as a very cruel and brutal one and there is no necessity for it. His testimony was backed up by two police constables. Even though a Skipton schoolmaster called John Barry and a draper, John McGlinsey, both appeared for the defence to testify that there was no unnecessary violence and they had approved of the show. The magistrates rejected Delaware's defence that chastisement was necessary to tame a lion and fined him two pounds, plus costs. The Herald's verdict was, The moral of the affair seems to be that if the infliction of bodily pain is necessary to induce animals to go through their performance, then the sooner it closes, the better. Hear, hear. Cruelty to animals was not an isolated case, as a prosecution for cruelty to a bear in 1903 shows, although the fact that they were even brought to court does at least show the RSPCA was active in the town. The facts of the case were that Jean-Baptiste, a Frenchman, was parading a bear through the town by means of a rope attached to a pole at one end and a ring Through the poor bear's nose at the other. The bear was exhausted and panting badly, but in the high street the Frenchman poked it hard in the throat with the pole and then in the stomach, at which the bear collapsed with a groan. Baptiste led the poor bear off down the high street, kicking it violently when it tried to lie down. Two policemen with Inspector Lindsay in tow, arrested the handler. Interestingly, while Baptiste was being kept in the cells until his court appearance, the bear was put up at a lodging house, though more details on where or how it had the facilities are not mentioned. After paying a £1 fine for cruelty to the magistrates, Baptiste, and his unfortunate charge, left the town immediately. I can't help thinking, though, that this story would end badly for the bear. In 1901, the town was shaken by a raid on a brothel in Skipton, although the newspapers were somewhat shy of using explicit language. Instead, it was described as throughout as a disorderly house and readers were left to fill in the gaps of the details. Those provided were that the policeman had been keeping watch on the house in Greenside off Newmarket Street, which only had two rooms, one of them upstairs. Five men went into the house during one evening. Um, All five of these were subsequently cleared of aiding and abetting in the keeping of a disorderly house. And there were three women in the house, and all of these were found guilty of keeping a disorderly house. Mary Mooney, who was presented as the owner, said the men were only there for a jollification, but it did not wash with the magistrates, who sentenced all the women to two months in jail. Children could be punished harshly in the courts. Two twelve year old boys who in nineteen o seven stole five pigeons and sold them to a game dealer in the town were given six strokes of the birch administered in front of their parents. Who delivered these six strokes is not specified, although it's more than likely it was the police sergeant. The action was generally applauded. A Herald columnist wrote, I'm glad to note but Skipton magistrates are resorting to the birch for the correction of the misdeeds of the youth of the district. district. Hooliganism and rank wantonness have long been rampant among a certain section. The magistrate's court in Skipton still exists. At first, magistrates heard cases in Sheep Street's old town hall until a purpose-built room in the town hall, the new town hall, that is, was opened in 1862. This room is still used by Skipton Town Council for its meetings, and it does look a lot more like a court than a council chamber. The county court on Otley Street, opposite the Albion Pub was built in 1847, and here a judge heard civil cases, mostly disputes over land and livestock involving farmers. However, it was here that most of the cases involving the wild women of Union Square were brought, as they were private prosecutions. Roughly every month, a circuit judge would attend to hear more serious cases, or committals to the Crown Court from the Magistrates' Court. The Magistrates' Court operated in the Town Hall until 1971, when a new Magistrates' Court was built by West Riding County Council and opened on July 20th 1973. It's still there today, its modern design earning it considerable criticism. The first case heard in this new magistrate's court was a drinks licence for the new landlord of the Royal Oak pub, Ronald Milburn. It was a quiet first day as the only other business conducted were two more licence cases and a criminal case in which a Belfast man living in a caravan in Skipton was fined £50 for obtaining goods by deception from Simpson's Gents Outfitters in Swadford Street. Until 1994, Settle and Ingleton both had their own courthouse hearing local cases, mainly motoring offences, but they were closed and all cases moved to Skipton. The Skipton Magistrates Court met on Wednesdays and Fridays in the later decades of the 20th century and on Monday for juvenile cases. The county court was also moved here and it met on Mondays, so it was quite busy. But now there are proposals to shut Craven's last courthouse and move all its business to Harrogate. Join me next time when I'll be looking at some Skipton murders from the archives. Thank you for listening. (laughs)